Hey everyone, this is Stacey Lindis from Podcast PD, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual host. Make sure you check out all of the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com and get ready because the learning begins in three, two, one. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Eleanor Cripps. She's the author of The Countess Choir Woman. Now, while it's a historical work of fiction, it centers on real people and events of Austria and the Abbey of Goss in the 1700s. It's a compelling story that is focused on Maria Columba, whose strong temper leads her to revolt against what she perceives as unjust decisions by her superiors. And that eventually gets her locked up. It's an incredible story. You're going to love this one. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Imagine a wronged woman receiving a new chance at life. This is a scenario that plays out in the debut historical fiction, The Countess Choir Woman by Eleanor Cripps. It is a dramatic and captivating real-life story from several centuries ago that resonates with many of us today. Eleanor is sharing a unique story of an 18th century woman who unwittingly submitted to unforeseen circumstances and upon reaching a breaking point, chose prolonged cruel imprisonment over sacrificing her dignity. It is a moving but shocking story that has never been told. The author retells it in her book, The Countess Choir Woman. The Countess Choir Woman is an authentic look at Austria in the 1700s and the history of the famed Abbey of Ghosts, a contemplative order of choir women from noble families, as a tale of morality, courage, and conviction to one's faith. Eleanor, who hails from the Austrian town of Leoben, discovered the historical events that inspired the book at a class reunion. Born in Austria, she learned English, French, and Italian. She worked for five years in South Africa and then worked for two years in Myanmar as a trilingual secretary and a delegate for the German Trade and Information Service. She later lectured about Buddhism before taking a job with the now-defunct Pan Am World Airways. She migrated to America and got a real estate license, serving the industry for 30 years. She now resides in Falls Church, Virginia. Eleanor, thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Thank you. I much appreciate being on your show, Steve. Well, I'm glad you're here. And before we talk about the Countess Choir Woman, let's talk about you. You are born in Austria. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your family? For sure. I was born in Vienna, Austria. My mother was Viennese. But I really grew up in this uh, small town at the time, about 40,000 inhabitants of Leoben, which is in the central province of Styria. Because my father, who was uh, an attorney with specializing in agrarian law, was uh, the head of the of the district there. So that's where I grew up. Excellent, thank you. And and uh, you know, and, and I got to make sure I ask this because as an adult, you're in the states and uh, you worked for thirty years selling real estate. Could you tell a little bit about the real estate business? You know, what did you like? What you didn't like? And and I think you have to be a little persistent to be in real estate, don't you? Yes, you certainly do. Uh, you have to be persistent also to come here on yourself, by yourself. I mean, <laughs> uh, at that time, um, I was able to get a visa for an immigrant, and uh, it wasn't easy to start with nothing. All I had was $1,000, and when you have no credit and uh, no job, 
uh, it's not that easy. But I was very lucky. I got a job very, very quickly. I lived in a tenant house on a farm. And um, uh, when I started real estate, that was difficult too because I had no referrals, but hard work and saving money. And I'm very proud to say I did realize my American dream and it was the best decision I ever made. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And one of the things I want to make sure that I get into also is in your bio, you say you discovered the historical events that inspired your book at a class reunion. Can you explain that? Yes, we had a class reunion about every 10 years, but sometimes also uh, less than 10 years. And uh, uh, my local colleagues or classmates uh, arranged uh, a tour of the former Abbey of Gurse, which is nearby, I picked up a booklet there. Actually, it's out of print, but I I may say I bribed our lector to get this booklet, which <laughs> uh, dedicates just a couple of pages uh, to, to, uh, to um, Maria Colomba, well, the choir woman, Maria Colomba. And uh, her story was so unique in the Abbey's history that I found her unusual life deeply touching, and decided to research the story. That, that's excellent. The, uh, and your book, The Countess Choir Woman, is a work of fiction, but you did a lot of work to make sure that it portrays life and the times accurately. Could you talk a little bit about your historical work? I mean, do you have, do you have one or two stories as you did your research that will always remember, you always remember well, having to do that? Uh, about her life, uh, since no one else had really written about her, uh, only the basic data and her family background, her love for the Gregorian chant, and of course what happened to her in the Abbey, there was very little available, and so I was most grateful to my high school friend, Ruth, to whom I dedicated the book. She was able to get me um, publications from the Bavarian Benedictine Academy that contained names, data, and even backgrounds of uh, all the major characters, including bishops and clerics, and believe it or not, even excerpts of sermons. That's excellent. The, uh, what, uh, um, did you have anything that, uh, you know, as you, fa- as you found out more, that you realized you had to go f- find new sources of information? Or were, were I mean, how, how did well, that go about? these were my primary sources. I still have these booklets. Uh, uh, but the rest, of course, it is an historic novel. But I said uh, her background and where she grew up and uh, the fact that she came from uh, Transylvania, which is now part of Romania, but was then the easternmost part of Hungary. And Hungary, of course, in the 18th century was part of uh, uh, the Austrian Empire. Excellent. Thanks. The, you know, one of the, um, and I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm curious as I, I've a former history teacher and it's really cool. And even though your book is a work of fiction, it's uh, you had to do all this, this this background study to figure out a little bit how to make it feel like the times and what you do a great job of by the way well uh you may find that hard to believe steve but uh you know i uh, i I devote the prologue to the history of the abbey because i think to understand uh the the abbey and what it stood for and uh what what they believed in it was important to know a little bit about the history and my best source, are you ready, was the <laughs> University of Mississippi. Okay. <laughs> no, I was not expecting that. <laughs> uh, 
I, I went, of course, by computer and I found, I found other sources too, of course, including in Austria. And I have the chronicle of the Abbey, but that's uh, much too detailed and technical and doesn't really touch the history that much. But uh, I'm very grateful to the University of Mississippi. That's excellent. That's excellent. So what was a choir woman? And share a little bit about the Abbey of Ghosts. Well, it's, it's really important because I know that my title is kind of a mouthful. <laughs> uh, I call it the Countess Choir Woman, two reasons. Uh, the members, all the nuns, until with very few, one or two exceptions in the last century of their existence, which was the 18th century, were, came from noble families. There was a good reason for that, because they had to bring substantial dowries. They were a contemplative orders, and allow me to just mention that a, a contemplative orders order is um, they dedicate their life to prayer and adoration, and they are usually confined, uh, cloistered, cloistered as it was called, and they do not perform charity work, but they had to live on something. There wasn't, there were no contributions from the church, so the dowries were mostly in land, but also in jewelry in money, cash, and uh, uh, land and jewelry. And the Abbey became very wealthy that way. And uh, the, they were wonderful landlords, by the way. If uh, help there, the, the abbesses were very kind to their uh, tenants. They, of course, all the farmers and tenants, they, they owned um, uh, little lakes for, to, for uh, trout and other fish. So they, they had to live, in other words, on something, and uh, were quite wealthy and well-off. So that's, uh, that's the uh, explanation for the countess. Now, choir women, they were originally, they date back to the year 1000, but uh, in the 8th century, a bishop by the name of Chodrigan laid down some precise guidelines and rules for certain religious communities. And these rules designated as much as seven, really six, but if you count some litanies, seven um, particular sun services. They were all sung mostly in Latin, of course. So later on, they were referred to as choir women because they always, the choir was that uh, performed these six or seven uh, daily services every 24 hours. Excellent. The, uh, you know, and one of the things I want to make sure that we, we do here is I want to remind everyone that, um, so here's some of this history that's going to come out from this, this time frame in Austria, and, um, and you create characters. And could you share a little about who, one of your main characters is Tessa, um, the challenges, struggles that she faces that eventually lead to her revolting and being imprisoned, <laughs> and, uh, and, and why you thought this was a good story to tell. Well, a, I remember a funny story a few, a few months ago. Uh, someone asked me at a party, he said, why would anyone in the 21st century want to read about a nun of 300 years ago? And without thinking, pardon me, I blurted out, well, just because she was a nun that doesn't think nothing happened. <laughs> Everybody broke out in laughter. Well, that's not, I'll give you a much better answer. All her life, this 
woman had courage, dignity, and the will to adjust to the demands of a most unusual and difficult life. And I believe that these are rather timeless qualities. And I have to say, it comes through loud and clear because, you know, as I read this, uh, it, uh, you know, I wanted to know more and your, your characters come alive and uh, it, uh, it, it does fit well. And you can just see the not wanting to be told everything, how to do things, how to live life and, uh, and then, you know, and then revolting against the punishments that come out as a result. Um, it, it does fit well. I think it does very much so. And well, she was a child of just 12 years old when uh, she and her three teenage siblings had to leave home and family in the mountains of Transylvania and live in Vienna in the house of a Catholic cardinal, which obviously had very strict discipline and enforced it. So still, she was able to not always successfully try to adjust and enjoy it. studies. She was a very intelligent woman and uh, tried very hard learned had to learn Latin of course and tried very hard to adjust yeah one of the things I really like is the way you use words to paint a picture of what is happening for example in in this section of the book you have this the ride that morning was less comfortable than the previous day they rolled down a steep rough road through dense woods not penetrated by the breaking dawn and the vehicle swayed and rattled as it negotiated rocks and rivulets washed out by rain progress was slow that's from page 163. And, and here's another one. Uh, family ties and familiar faces made life away from home more bearable for the young. But a tendency to form cliques, spin intrigues, and indulge in vicious or gruel gossip also caused bad blood or resentment among the excluded. And that was from page 216. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your use of imagery and why it's important to your story? I'm, of course, very familiar with the landscape. And uh the, the trip, for instance, by carriage from Vienna to Leoben, you know, that uh, all they went through. And uh, it was just the two girls left. The boys had left earlier to the um, Abbey of Milk. And uh, they just had a very difficult time uh, to go through this. And most of all, about parting, when the two parted, even though they had not been that close as, uh, as siblings, they, it really hurt. And uh, they were both facing something totally new and unknown. And and it just you you paint the picture where it. I mean, the words that you use help us understand and feel it. And that's what I think is neat. I I think you do an excellent job of command of the of that imagery. So uh, that's awesome. And you can and I, I, and it's neat hearing you because I think obviously your some of that is your your memories and thoughts of the areas and, and the landscape and such. So. While you were doing this uh, research, was there anything just really startling that you found out while you were researching, while you were working on your story, something that uh, that you made sure that you included that uh, um, is something that was part of the uh, of their world at the time? That well, one of the one of the uh, details uh, that uh, really touched me was um, the chapter that I donate to uh, the young countess. Uh, Salzenberg, who is against her father's wishes, uh, joins because she was being forced, she was crippled, and she was being forced into this, into a marriage that she hated, and most of all, since her, she had a hunchback and one leg shorter, and she desperately, uh, her parents rather, forced her to uh, 
walk like a like a normal person. And finally, when this came, when the when the wedding drew closer and closer, she couldn't stand it anymore and insisted on joining the Abbey of Gerst. And uh, as a novice, she was already 18 years old. And her father was absolutely furious because he didn't even he helped. He was an assistant, uh, a secular assistant to the to the abbey to to the abbess rather uh, to administer the land. But he had to agree, or she threatened to um, to reveal her state of health. And yet here she comes, and um, uh, Maria Colomba, who is assigned to help her since she only had one year to study for her final vows, she becomes more and more concerned, and in the end, of course, helps her become a choir woman with hardly a day to spare because she has a what probably nowadays would be called stomach ulcers uh, that were close to killing her. And Maria Colomba risks much of her standing in the Abbey, especially with the future Abbess, by doing this. And that, that's part... Be- I'm sorry, go ahead. I believe that was probably one of her bravest acts of, uh, of uh, um, help, uh, really, uh, of compassion that she had for this for this poor girl who was almost dying but so badly wanted to be a choir woman. And and that's that's section comes out loud and clear. You feel the you, you feel that uh, um, that tension and the and what she's possibly giving up as a result of spending so much time with her. You, you know, one of the things she also there's a second act of uh, true compassion when later on the abbess that she really well, the abbess who was in charge when she was uh, condemned to her camera correcciones or correction chamber, as the uh, translation would be, it, it was nothing short of a prison cell. But yet when the abbess is near death, she asked the, the, the saber of uh, Columba to uh, paint, to from memory in her prison cell, paint... Um, a copy of her beloved home country, and she does, and manages to get it into the abbey's hands, uh, into the abbess's hands, just as she's about, just as she is on her deathbed. And I thought that was another very brave and compassionate deed. Very much so. Very much so. You know, you know. Late in the book, there's a scene that's very poignant, and and it. I'm going to take this quotation from it. It says, life is so much easier when you don't provoke them. You know, this is one of uh, one of the other women talking um, with your main character here. Life is so much easier when you don't provoke them because they leave you alone. Just turn a deaf ear. And she says, but I just can't. Can you talk about this, you know, you're, you're building to this um, big part of the book here. This is towards the end. This is can you talk about this scene a little bit in this this part with your character? Well, she is visited by uh, several uh, of her fellow uh, choir women, but of course, the, her most faithful friends were always uh, Antonia, Maria Antonia, and uh, Maria Anna, whom she especially loved and was very close to. But uh, some, but most, all of them who visit her, and there are not very many try to persuade her to give up, to submit to the punishment that she considers absolutely 
are undignified and not to speak of unjust, but she will not do that. And that, I think, is great dignity. She was, she never broke that dignity and she even, even so when the, when she finally gets the interview with the visiting bishop, even so she loses her temper, but she always maintains her dignity. And that, and that's just a neat part of the character. You know, she shows this strength, she shows this power, um, even though everything's being taken from her and she's going to be punished and so forth, you know, she continues to hold that strength to, uh, Standard ground, I guess, is my point. So, you know, one of the things that uh, I want to do is we're, we're kind of drawn to an end here as we talk about your book, and and I I really am fascinated. I mean, as a it it has you you tell this the the history of the Abbey, and that you give us a little background of the time frame, and then we're introduced to the characters, and it is a wonderful um, telling of this of this story, and uh, and you are compelled to. To read your your imagery and the the story itself is very compelling and and I, kudos to you in creating that. You know, one of the things I want to ask you is, it, this took you like ten years to write. Is that correct? No, that was a that was a mistaken um, report. Uh, that came from a young man who interviewed me here for a paper um, uh, for a local paper in Falls Church, and he got that wrong. So, I. I, to, basically, I wrote the story 10 years ago, and uh, I tried to ask a couple of, or not I tried, I asked a couple of uh, uh, agents whether it, was, it could be published, and I was immediately told nobody wants to read about a nun. So I just left it sit there, and then uh, really just last year, uh, 18, in April 2018, I saw an ad by the Christian, um, by, by my publishers, um, and um, I thought, well, maybe they are interested. So I sent them, I contacted them, and they said, well, you have to send us a manuscript, which I did, by computer, of course, um, and the Christian Faith Publishing, within a, within a week, I had a contract. Somebody must have liked it. My, quite frankly, um, and I'm sure you noticed that, uh, Steve, I should have had, being a first-time author, I should have had a, um, an editor. I should have had someone to help me with certain things, but uh, that was not the case. The editor was just a computer, and even the computer didn't uh, catch all, but, well, he catched most, caught most of them, but... Uh, missed on one typo that is still in the book that I missed too. So I think it would have been a better book if I'd had an editor. Don't you think so? Well, I can tell you that it doesn't distract from it, okay? It doesn't detract from it. It has, uh, um, because I, it, it's not like, I've read uh, some books where there's uh, just, it just kills you to read. Uh, there's, it, it's not like that in your book. So I, I don't, um, you, I'm sure you see it, and it, it bothers you because it's like the ding in a car <laughs> that you see. But uh, um, just just know that I don't think that uh, um, detracts. Well, thank you. But uh, I always like to write stories. I I wrote stories when I retired from real estate. I sat down and wrote down the story of my life. I hate to tell you, it's 750 pages, and it's sitting on the computer. <laughs> so when are you going to share it? Well, 
I don't know. I have another story, but, but we are talking about uh, uh, my choir woman, and I really became to uh, got to like her very much. I think she was with all her her main fault really was her uh, temper. She had a short temper, and she had that as a child. But other than and her love of the of the uh, Gregorian uh, Gregorian chant was so intense that she was probably well. When we are very very caught up in something that we want, then we usually forget uh, or are not very considerate of people who disagree. And that's a problem, and I think that was her problem. There, and that comes out a couple different times in there where others are trying to make that point to her that she should work on that a little bit. So uh, she's, she's a neat character. I think you've created an awesome tale, and, uh, and with it centered on the, in the, uh, on the history itself, it, uh, it feels like a, it should be a movie. <laughs> it really does. The, uh, so, you know, b- before we go, any advice for educators who may be thinking about writing a book? I believe that it might, uh, uh, most of all, maybe it uh, it conveys a little bit of, I think, a love that you and I share for history, and that it tells young people uh, there are other things than just um, old Star Wars or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> they are legends also, let's face it. And even so, I have the legend in there of, uh, of uh, Saint Lamberti, who... Um, vanquishes the the Turks, so to say, when they're there. And uh, young people might say, well, that's ridiculous. That could never happen. Well, many of today's stories could never happen either. I mean, (laughs) fiction, especially movies. But it should uh, hopefully inspire a love for history. And that, I can't say it often enough, history wrote such beautiful stories. And even books that are not novels, but concentrate on history, are just marvelously uh, exciting and spellbinding. Most definitely, most definitely. You know, by the way, I want to make sure I ask you this before we go. Do you have a way that if someone wanted to reach out to you, they could connect with you to learn more? Well, yes. Uh, I'll be happy to give you my phone number or my email address, first of all, and I will be delighted to answer questions or anything that I can I can tell about it. Of course, uh, the book, needless to say, is available in bookstores and on, on Amazon, but uh, I will be very happy. My, um, You already have the spelling of my hometown. My um, email address is l-e-o-b-e-n at cox.net. I don't know whether I was allowed to do that, to say that. But, oh, that's uh, fine. If anyone wants to reach out to me and that's what you asked, uh, that's where they can find me. Excellent. Now, I'll make sure that's in the show notes. The... Uh, that'll be in my show notes as well as links to where they can purchase the book, The Countess Choir Woman, which I encourage them to do. It's a it's an awesome story, and you get to feel the history as well as the love for the, the content and the characters that Eleanor has created, which is awesome. So I've got... By the way, I'm sure you noticed on the, on the title, on the, front, uh, on the uh, cover of the book, is, of course, a 1681... Uh, lithograph of the Abbey of Gus. Yes, very much so. It's, yeah. Which is Today, cool. there's still the 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 Abbey's Church is still there. Some of the fortifications, a couple of the of the watchtowers, and uh, one or two of the buildings. 
but unfortunately that's all that's left but it's the abbey was dissolved almost 300 years ago wow the uh it's a it's a neat picture because it gives you a feel for how large of a um, area it was that this made up so it uh very cool so i got last two questions which have nothing to to do with anything else i just like to ask my guests this if you had a chance to talk with an audience of teachers, of educators, about working with kids, what is something that you would want them to know or think about? I want them to think of the children's natural curiosity. And if you can really guide a child by making history exciting, not just uh, bogged down in, in dates and numbers and king so-and-so and emperor so-and-so, but the human side of it. And history has, obviously, it's human history, so it is very human. And I think it's easy to excite uh, the love for history and my other love, by the way, geography. Uh, my favorite book as a child was an atlas that my father had. And I drew all the continents by the time I was 10 years old. But uh, that's just... That and history, I think, belongs together, and they should be part of every child growing up. And reading books, reading books, they teach you so much more to read than to just watch something on TV or or on the cell phone. <laughs> yes. But I shouldn't have said the last. <laughs> the, uh, so here's the last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it, and what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? No, I don't really. I don't have any teacher, no. Uh, I have a very, one of my very best friends is a retired teacher, and she's an excellent, she was also a history teacher. Uh, and uh, teaching, of course, is a wonderful, wonderful profession uh, because you can really mold people, and uh, very, very bad things happen when the teacher is not good. And uh, I had in, in my studying for my baccalaureate, my share of that, but uh, uh, it's a good teacher is just an irreplaceable person to me in a, in, in a child's life. That's awesome. You're, and you're so correct. You're so correct. So, Eleanor, thank you so much for talking with us today. Your book, The Countess Choir Woman, is an excellent read and fascinating look into a previously unshared historical situation that takes a look at fighting for personal beliefs, determination, and personal internal strength to stay the course. You do a wonderful job of transporting the reader into a world of the past, and I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, speaking to you. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. <laughs> The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.